Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. This episode of Victor's Children is an interview with Penice and Tamsin from the podcast Anti-Go-Boss Socialist Club, in which they talk in detail about equity, diversity, and inclusion, or EDI measures, and sexual violence programs, especially on university campuses. And they look at some of the similarities between these things, including parallels between them and what employers, human resource staff do. And they discuss these kinds of programs and measures both as bureaucratic institutional responses to manifestations of real oppression, and also in part about simply defending or enhancing the reputation of employers and managers. They've provided a lot of readings, which you can find in the show notes for this episode if you're interested in following up and reading on these topics. So, Penis and Tamsin, welcome to Victor's Children. Could you introduce yourselves to listeners? My name is Penis Khosrowshahi. Uh, I work in union-side labor law in Toronto. I did my undergrad in women's studies, and then I did law school after that. And right now, I spend most of my time with the um, Movement Defense Committee, my union, our podcast about which we're going to talk about. And I also do a lot of sports. I do competitive powerlifting and play roller derby. I did not think about what, what bio I would use. Um, my name is Tamsin. I went to U of T for my undergrad in a lot of things, but mostly equity studies. And I was very involved in anti-sexual violence organizing in undergrad. Um, since then, I've worked on a mutual aid fund, um, have been learning more about the problems with mutual aid and different approaches to that. And now I'm mostly just working on this podcast and some creative writing on the side. So in, in late 2021, you launched the Anti-Girlboss Socialist Club, which is a podcast that I think is really excellent. Uh, could you tell us how you came to start it and what you're aiming to do with it? As I mentioned, I did my undergrad in women's studies and I was involved with uh, radical anti-state abolitionist groups. And even if I wasn't fully involved, that's kind of like what shaped my understanding of social justice, broadly speaking. So I never cared about like CEOs or representation and so on. Um, and when I started law school, I came into contact with people that actually did believe that those things were legit. And before that, I just saw them in a distance. Um, and now I would, people that I knew were like shedding tears of joy because um, last year, Justin Trudeau appointed the first racialized Supreme Court justice. And like their hero is unironically um, RBG or Rosalie Bella and so on. And they like believe in corporate social responsibility or whatever. So, um, and it was kind of a rude awakening about what actually passes for feminism and racial equality and so on in much of society. And I guess like reflecting on around like 10 years of being involved with like various feminist uh, activities on and off campus, it's weird to see the mainstreaming of liberal inclusion discourse because this is really a shift that happened in my lifetime when I was in early undergrad uh, almost like 10 years ago feminism was still taboo and people were still doing the 
oh, I'm not a feminist because I think men and women and women are equal thing. And, um, you know, we had all those early 2010, 2010s op-eds on like, can I wear lipstick and still be a feminist? And now here we are, like the Justin Trudeau went from being having the gender equal cabinet to appointing the first yeah, racialized Supreme Court justice, the minister of defense is now as a woman of color, our attorney general is indigenous. So like, what's next? Yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't think that there is a next. And so on, on, on another level, nothing has really changed substantively. Now it's 2021. We are all intersectional feminists because. Um, now, when you read an article about some sort of disparity, there's always that caveat that, oh, this is this thing is bad, but women of color have it worse. And that's it. It just kind of like ends. Um, now we don't want women CEOs. We also want women of color CEOs. So that's kind of like the only shift that has happened. It's kind of like a liberal intersectional feminism. Sad that like we can't say words anymore because they don't mean anything. It's like, what does intersectionality mean anymore? But anyway, um, uh, so for us, when we wanted to have this podcast, we wanted to kind of bring um, stories and perspectives that, no, it's not just white heterosexual women that should be accumulating power and wealth and resources. And uh, more broadly, a lot of reasons that both Hampton and I have been disillusioned um, about what passes um, as feminism. So pretty much as long as we've known each other. Um, we've known each other through the anti-violence movement and we both started at various uh, campus initiatives and groups. And we've seen the same themes over and over, over the years, like about who gets airtime, who gets to sit on various committees, who gets the awards, um, who gets to be invited on like panels and whatnot, and kind of like what perspectives shape public discourse and what perspectives just get completely shut out. And so we wanted to... Uh, we, I, for, for me personally, I just got frustrated with all, all like uh, feeling like all I was doing is to message things to Thompson and be like, have you seen this? I can't believe this person said this. Or have you seen what the government announced? Um, so now we just do that more publicly on a podcast. Yeah, I think I would echo a lot of the same like frustrations and kind of origins of the time when, I mean, we were both in undergrad at different institutions and organizing in different spaces, but um, just the same things around like neoliberal intersectional feminism, where like every, maybe not everyone, but most people can kind of articulate how different forces of oppression affect different communities and how those compound on each other, aside from like misusing what the term intersectionality is even supposed to mean and the basic idea of intersecting and not just adding on. It just also the at the same time, like the, um, and obviously there are a variety of structural reasons for this that we'll probably be getting into in other questions, but the impact of neoliberalism on social movements and the feminist movement in particular to where it feels like, and I think has felt to us like the most common times when you see these ideas mentioned is from like influencers or politicians um, in the liberal government. And I think to me, it sort of felt like Socialist feminism was something that I got to learn about a bit in school, quite theoretically, which not that we're against reading theory, like I think we both think it's really valuable. Um, but then I felt like when I was seeing feminist activism in the world, a lot of it was through this more neoliberal framework. And that's not to disparage the people who are doing the work, but I think for a lot of reasons... Um, and particularly in anti-sexual violence work, like it's uncommon to see 
you know, kind of grassroots mobilization around that. It's more you see the like International Women's Day, um, Sexual Assault Awareness Month activities where there's a few panels and people will talk about prison abolition. And then that's kind of just it. And so I think we were feeling like even just kind of trying to understand like what is socialist feminism to us? What could that mean in the world, in our lives? And we just wanted to talk to other people to kind of reflect on those questions and our own understanding and then also kind of share some of what we've learned along the way. Because I think a lot of these problems relate to the fact that within social movements, there's like not a lot of continuity of information and not that we're experts, but there are things that we've learned that maybe we can share with with other people. Well, this brings us to the question of equity, diversity, and inclusion, EDI, which has become a buzzword in many workplaces and other institutions today. And it was the subject of the first episode of the Anti-Girl Boss Socialist Club, uh, which featured an interview with Ronaldo Walcott. So could you talk about what you see as the EDI industry? Maybe before I talk about EDI itself, it's good to reflect on what systemic racism, what this term means now. Because it, it didn't, it, it, yeah, I, I feel like that has also gone through a shift in meaning. So as, as systemic racism has entered the common lexicon, um, I, I, I find far from highlighting the structures of injustice, it's, it, it's, not, it's, it's not systemic. It's about the way that it's being used. It's seen as an aggregate of individual bad actors. When they're put together, they become a system. It's, so it becomes like, it's not just one bad apple, it's 10. Um, and, and under EDI, they can be reformed, or sometimes you throw one or two apples out and you have lunch and learn sessions, you have anti-racist book clubs. So it's, um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's not as systemic as it sounds. Um, you see a lot of, uh, so every time you hear something, I mentioned like this, oh, it's so this issue disproportionately affects women of color. So I find it very interesting whenever that term disproportionately affected is being used because to me, it seems like that's the extent of the liberal acknowledgement of racism. For example, take COVID. Um, early COVID, during like maybe like last year around this time, so uh, 2021, um, 2020, there was a lot of talk about how COVID has disproportionately imp- imp- uh, impacted racialized people. There was a lot of talk uh, of that beginning of uh, the pandemic, but without further analysis, like, so you read this as though racialized people have like inferior biology or bad cultural habits. Like, okay, why does it disproportionately affect them? Also, um, I'm a racialized person, but I'm not affected. Could that be because I'm like home all the time? I can work from home. Um, Like, does class have to do with it? Um, I found that the more like astute liberals might acknowledge the role of overcrowded housing and precarious employment and these health disparities, but never um, the root of those conditions like capitalism, private property, the nation state. So, uh, and in the emphasizing the structural aspect of race, um, EDI takes on this very individualized understanding of racism and uh, reinforces the idea that every fiber of our colonial white supremacist capitalist society is committed to equality, which is not true. And uh, so the EDI industry, I guess, to go back to a question, is the proliferation of consultants and experts and committees and roundtables and reports and so on. And right now, it's very much focused on racism. I feel like maybe a few years ago, like gender was also important. Now, these I feel like these things come and go in waves. Um, 
but yeah, addressing racism and ensuring minorities aren't just represented, that uh, that's still very important, but also that they belong to big institutions. And so something Professor Walcott does uh, on the podcast is that, he, and so he, he also does this in his paper called uh, The End of Diversity. So he traces the um, lineage, I suppose, of EDI to multiculturalism. And so EDI, so this is to say that EDI has existed in some shapeless form um, for a long time, even though I, I guess like this current iteration has ramped up since like 2020. And in, in the U.S. too, so diversity arises, uh, if, if you read a lot of um, early affirmative action decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, you see how just how they're talking about diversity. And, and so uh, affirmative action itself comes from the civil rights discourse, which is a very deeply liberal project. So similarly, EDI operates in this rubric of liberalism, just like focuses on eliminating unconscious bias and reducing racism to like what happens when um, individuals wrongly think some things that they would absolutely correct them if it was brought to their attention. And um, I mean, a lot of my frame of reference is law because um, that's kind of like my field. So like, for example, EDI becomes like limited to the self-contained world around uh, this law firm's Bay Street headquarters and focused on recruiting, retaining, educating employees, and sometimes in pro bono work without any reference to the actual work of the firm. Um, like what kind of interests the day-to-day work of the firm is advancing. Um, and yes, I mentioned the Supreme Court of the U.S. It's very eye-opening to see how they're talking about diversity. Um, I think it's Grutter and Bollinger, Justice, uh, might have said that incorrectly, doesn't matter. Justice O'Connor says that, quote, as major American businesses have made it clear, the skills needed in today's increasingly global marketplace can only be developed through exposure to widely diverse people, cultures, ideas, and viewpoints. This is, I think, like early 2000s. And this description is what we see a lot um, described as the business case for diversity. And, and a lot of these ADI uh, panels and whatever, they talk about how the business case is good, but also about these other cases that is like are very similar to the business case. So it's about eliminating structural bias in the workforce. It's about inclusive leadership, promoting fairness, corporate citizenship. But when it's all boiled down, um, this is all about, so they want like the best talent to provide the best services. But what are these services? And what are the ends that they are um, in service to? That's never discussed. And I find that, so EDI is, the capitalism is kind of like what multiculturalism is to the nation state. It's this elaborate, expansive infrastructure to just justify and sugarcoat and make really awful things more palatable. That's, is that a good description <laughs> for now? So. Yeah. Yeah. And um, maybe just to pick up on, I think that was a great overview, just to highlight like one piece that I think also connects with what we're talking about later around sexual assault is this emphasis on education and training. And I was thinking about this incident that happened at Massey College in U of T, I think in 2017, when an administrator made a comment towards a Black student about um, the title that he had at the time of master at Massey College. Um, And so there was outcry as there should have been because it was extremely racist. And the response was um, to change the title, which, you know, I think with a lot of these things, it's like 
obviously that's good. The title shouldn't have been master. Um, but then the other part of it was that he would receive equity training. Um, and I'm not sure, I didn't see, I'm not sure if there was any more information about what that means, but um, just this idea that racism sort of just exists naturally in the world and the way that the university positions its relationship to it becomes really limiting because then it's just like white people just don't know better and need to be trained. And, you know, there's no kind of understanding of how racism doesn't just exist in that way. It actually benefits white people. Like there's a reason that it exists. It's not just about not knowing better. Um, but with that characterization, you can sort of have like endless trainings because it's not actually going to eliminate racism. And also, you know, it's sort of impossible to quantify exactly like what amount of training is needed. Like now that I think a lot of people are understanding that, you know, systemic racism is so huge and we live with it every day. That sort of means like if you've lived with it for 20 years, do you need 20 years of training and then you'll be cured? Like this industry sort of creates a really limited understanding of the problem. So then, you know, there's consultants who I think, like, I think this is part of the problem that this is the only way that anti-racist work is really being done in these institutions. So there's people who I think who who certainly do actually have a good understanding of what racism is and why it exists, who are then doing this labor for institutions in this very particular way. But it sort of means that there's always going to be, there's always more training that's needed. There's always going to be more racism within the institution that then demands another task force, another report from the task force, more recommendations, and the cycle sort of just continues from there. I think you've both done a really good job of, you know, explaining this. So I guess the question that comes up in my mind after that is, so what do you think of socialists? Like, how should we relate to these programs in the places where we do work, for example? Um, I'll come to that. J just before answering to that question, I just want to add to what Hampton said about the individuals who hold various positions. As like, gotta say, like the South Asian Student Association to EBI consultant is real. Um, I've seen it. Uh, a lot but so about individuals who hold these positions um or about the, like the way that we see so EDI um produces race by positioning it as an always salient category of difference um and and then again like racialized people in a way in corporate ranks become these like morally pure representatives of what is best for the race and uh, if so if they bless a capitalist project then that project must be necessarily good and and this is not new. Uh, so, for example, um, like again, like the civil rights movement, like people like Derek Bell, uh, they had the same criticisms about desegregation. Uh, so he wrote extensively that desegregation benefited middle class white and black people as opposed to uh, working class black people, like and 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 the U.S. nation state. So it created the symbol of progress at the height of the Cold War. And also, like a lot of people have written about the role of like the racialized elite and in this country and the native elite in colonial societies. Um, I often like think about Robin Robin B. G. Kelly's uh, like he has a talk he, he has this talk on um, YouTube about racial capitalism and I forget what in but specifically i don't think it's desegregation it was another issue that he's talking about but he refers to uh, like that this like elite class as a black political class that serves services as junior partners in authoritarian governments or black face of authoritarianism all in the name of multicultural multiculturalism and diversity and yeah i often think about that and i think it's 
So, and uh, David, to, like, to come to your question, I think um, it's important to remember that in the sense that I find that a lot of people don't want to or are afraid of criticizing EVI for fear of being labeled as racist. I, I think, so I, I think people like listen, so, you know, people say, oh, listen to racialized people, but like that doesn't mean like listen to your friend who is, you know, a brown doctor that lives next door and whatever they say is correct, you know, is, um, yeah, I mean, don't doesn't mean, I mean, I went to some of like the most like pretentious elite educational institutions in the country. So like my personal experience, please don't listen to that with respect to like what racialized people need. Like it's about what, it's about a political perspective. I mean, developing, like listening to people, like listening to like racialized people, it's about developing a political perspective based on collective experiences of race and understanding how other factors like class and like access to citizenship and all these things complicate things. Um, and I uh, also think especially people involved with unions should be very cautious of EDI because obviously these are um, management uh, initiatives. These are entirely management initiatives that position managers as workers savior, even though the same demographics that EDI seeks to capture are the ones that have the most to gain from fighting their managers. <laughs> but as, as with like other HR programs, uh, EDI advances employers' organizational objectives. So in the employment context, um, there's an academic named Jack Fiorito. I forget where he's based, but he calls, he is not talking about EDI in this one particular paper that I really liked. <laughs> But he talks about employer grievance management tactics. So you can go to HR to make a harassment com complaint, for example. So he calls those uh, union substitution because the employer is providing employees with alternative uh, forms of voice and agency to address grievances and concerns so that you don't even need to go to your union. You, they can just handle it in-house with whatever um, like mechanism that they want. And I think, yeah, so he talks about like, or like he, he also calls union substitution, for example, like job perks, for example. I think, who's the author of that book that came out recently? Um, when love doesn't love, you, when work doesn't love you back. Sarah yeah, Jaffe. Jaffe. Yeah, yeah she, I, she talks about that in her book too. So like these like little perks that jobs have. And I think it equally applies to EDI. As, uh, I think EDI is union substitution. So, oh, wow, like, you are invited to sit on this EDI committee that I don't know how <laughs> frequently it meets and like, who knows what happens after the meeting, but clearly management cares. So you don't need to like make a complaint or like, not that complaints are the end all be all, but it really provides employers with a way to, um, yeah, manage grievances and grievance. I don't mean just like a union grievance, just like issues um, in-house and, create this kind of like loyalty to to the workplace and I guess like last thing I on this I would say is that EDI also makes us lose sight of our goals I think so Sarah uh, Ahmed has written extensively on what diversity accomplishes um both both, both kind of like yeah both these diversity projects and um campus sexual violence policies and so on that um we'll touch on soon um on this episode but so he calls them non-performatives in the sense that diversity is named in order to not bring diversity into effect. So it is 
diversity the diversity is doing something what it's doing is not doing anything but pretending like something is happening um and yeah like i i think it loses sight it, it makes us lose sight of our goals because uh, the country's race problems are in its designs and liberation does not trickle down and um yeah yeah and just to add on a little bit um and going back to what panise was saying about kind of the broader role of the university, I think. I mean, certainly not that all unions are always in solidarity with workers around the world. That has like often not been the case, but, um, you know, EDI as a as an HR initiative certainly isn't. And like, it's sort of interesting to look at, especially the most recent manifestations. Like I was looking at the U of T, um, they had this task force on anti-Black racism in 2020 and 2021. And so a lot of the language used by the administration taking up these ideas is around like anti-Blackness as something that exists globally. But then the initiatives and the, the issues being discussed are all about, you know, internal staffing in administration, hiring of professors, um, and like student experience scholarships and things like that. And I think, um, yeah, I think I would echo Panis that like there's a lot of hesitation to critique EDI and the feeling that it's racist to critique it, which I think obviously there is also on the right, like a, a strong um, resistance to these ideas. But I also think like on the left, we can acknowledge that like, yes, obviously the university should represent the pol- the population that it is serving. There should be more racialized faculty. There should be more black faculty. You know, there are things in there that are valuable, but part of the project of neoliberalism here, and I think Ronaldo Walcott was talking about this in, in our episode with him, is to like constrain the imagination and to say that this is like all that can be demanded of the university. Um, and so I think it feels like the most important thing is just to question the limits of what the university actually can do. Like, why can't we have diverse faculty and also a curriculum that is, you know, socially useful? And that's where I think like a lot of these EDI initiatives, you know, you never see any mention of, for instance, at U of T, this partnership with um Peter Monk, who has now passed away, but the Monk family and this um mining company, um, the funding arrangement for the Monk School is, um, to my understanding, at least a few years ago when I when I knew more about this, um, like the funding could be taken away at any time. And so, you know, talking to academics and graduate students there, like there's no rule that you can't critically research mining and the detrimental effects that Barrick Gold has had on communities in the global South, um, including Black communities in Africa, like the, the hugely widespread environmental and social impacts of those. But at the same time, if you if you were to research that, you know, there is sort of an understanding that that could very easily have consequences. And so is it a coincidence that as far as I know, there aren't, there isn't anyone at the Monk School who is researching the impacts of Barrick Gold mining? Um, you know, all of these partnerships with with private industries at universities that we've seen increasing with neoliberalism, those are never even kind of considered within the scope of EDI. It's all about how do we create equality in this, as Panis was saying, like a very surface level kind of equality, but within the institution and not at all about how should the university relate to the communities around it? How should it relate to the world? And, you know, when U of T, but many other universities 
is considering itself and marketing itself as a global university and preparing students for a globalized world, like what does that actually mean? Um, and so with respect to what like the university does, and this makes me think about like various law firms again and various like initiatives they have. So they, I don't know if they all do. I know some of them now have like special streams for um, like racialized black or like indigenous students. And it's like, okay, cool. You also have like a huge mining practice, you know? So um, it's, so with respect to like what they're putting these quote unquote talents to uh, use. So it's, I think it's just part of this, our understanding of like the, what's it called? The skill, talent economy, market economy. Um, no, anyway, like I'm, I'm blanking on the board, but just like, so, yeah, I, I mean, like under neoliberalism, it's like unclear what the purpose, the, the ends are just like completely divorced from the means is like um, what I want to say. And another thing that Tamsin said with respect to hiring of professors I have also noticed that I remember looking at anti-racism reports from McGill and UFP and maybe there were some differences. Anyway, they were like quite similar as expected, but just the idea that once you hire quote unquote diverse faculty, that's just going to solve things. Like, yes, I agree that we need more of that, but like, what are they, like, do we know what they're going to be doing when they come to the institution? And I say this, I didn't have um, an, a racism complaint when I was in university, like a formal one. There were many instances of um, racism, but it's kind of like, yeah, sorry, David, I'm, it's kind of like going on to our next topic, but I did have um, sexual violence complaints. And it's mind boggling to see how a lot of feminist academics um, just did not really support students or did not really care. Like, the VP of, uh, sorry, the Vice Provost Sandy Walsh at UFP, for example, I forget her position. She's like, like some very senior person. Anyway, I like emailed her about, about my complaint um, because no one else was responding and she didn't respond either. Like apparently she lost my email and her, her um, studies are in sexual harassment. Like that's part of her expertise, sexual harassment in workplace. Sorry, I don't want to <laughs> cut you off, but just yeah. a morsel of gossip that I often think about is that there's an administrator who literally studies sexual harassment, like is often an expert witness in sexual harassment trials, writes about it all the time, was known to be covering up sexual harassment within her department um, that, you know, drove students who also wanted to study sexual harassment to have to leave the university. Is this at UFB? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah don't, so I don't know if I can name names, but I want to. <laughs> this this actually, I think, is a good segue to the question of um, sexual violence programs on university campuses, which you did an episode on. And so I'd be interested if you could say some thoughts, uh, share some thoughts about, um, you know, what's wrong with these programs? Because, of course, on one level, they are undeniably responses to certain real manifestations of patriarchal oppression, right? Um, but you in that episode, uh, had some, I think, very incisive criticism. So could you maybe summarize your, your critique? If I can, like, before that, just, like, say that there is a big parallel between the sexual violence offices and HR in the sense that, but I also think that HR, uh, sexual violence offices are even worse for the reasons that we'll discuss because HR 
um, at least has a pretense of neutrality, even though their paycheck is written by the by uh, the management. But sexual violence offices present themselves as like the champion of survivors, even though at the end of the day, they're also university administrative bodies staffed by university administrators. And so are by definition intended to work for the university. Yeah, um, I can keep going on that note. Um, I think there are many similarities between um, this and sort of the issue of racism as it is addressed by universities and namely in terms of like the kinds of initiatives that are usually undertaken. So with most universities, whether they have a separate sexual assault office or however it's configured, um, the main activities are sort of like awareness raising generally around sexual violence exists and is a problem. Um, And then activities to tell students about resources, which I mean, we'll get into later, but I think often these are like um, purposely misinforming students about resources that exist and how good they actually are um, or, you know, whether they're actually helpful at all. Um, And then there's like consent education, which is similar to the, you know, educating people against racism, um, but I think has faced increased pressures. And there's sort of an interesting, um, I think, like the complexity of anti-sexual violence movements in the past few years has meant that there's also, I think, a lot of mobilization from feminists towards these kind of projects. Um, I think for like many different reasons. Um, I think partly just the idea that if you have consent education, it's like more palatable and then you can sort of sneak in these other more feminist ideas around sexual violence and sort of like sneak in more education about resources and things like that into these consent education programs. But I also think that partly like the neoliberal effect again on um, this kind of work has meant that, um, you know, a lot of these initiatives are based in this very kind of like technocratic approach of, you know, how to teach students about communication and relationship skills. And I think like, obviously it's true. I think that we don't culturally emphasize the value of, you know, having positive, like consensual relationships in many different forms. But there again, it's sort of a symptom of a broader problem with colonialism and capitalism. And so it's sort of treating the side effect, which is that men are are violent. Um, But instead of addressing like, why does the patriarchy exist? You know, again, because it benefits men and other people. it's sort of like treating it as a problem of education. Sorry, I feel like I'm, I'm rambling a bit, but um, just characterizing this as a problem of education and then um, addressing it that way. And so when sexual violence happens, it also affects the outcome, um, which, you know, for the record, Peniz and I, like we're, we're abolitionist feminists. So it's not that either of us is like, you know, jail for everyone. Um, but at the same time, like there's also surely ways to, to treat sexual violence seriously, um, without, you know, resorting to the criminal justice system. And so I think there's also a way that abolitionist discourses and ideas like transformative justice and before that restorative justice, those have been taken up by universities to really just kind of say that like, perpetrators are sort of like these gentle flowers who shouldn't be inconvenienced. And like, if they have to be moved out of a class, that's 
that's, you know, carceral feminism and things like that. So I think there's like an interesting feminist conflict in, in all of this that's a bit different than the EDI issue. Um, yeah, please, you look like you want to say something. I don't want to cut you off, but yeah, so I, I think it's, um, I also like want to give kind of like a background to how we got to the current environments, I suppose, like the, how like these offices and how these sexual violence policies came about because uh, yeah like policy making and like training and all these things they're not they didn't just like come out of nowhere so it's important to um yeah to like look back so in like in the 70s um in the title 7 of the civil rights act in the US uh there was that in, in 1978 there was a US federal court that accepted for the first time that sexual harassment constituted sex discrimination under title 7 which was very disturbing to a lot of employers. So they wanted to, uh, I, I, they wanted to like cover their tracks. So essentially that kind of led to the mass adoption of policy and training um, in order to, in a way, intercept complaints before make, they could make their way to the court because um, this is actually like a defense in the US. So like if you look, if you just say that, oh, I had a policy in my workplace, even if it was a bad policy and it wasn't used, then that I forget the like exact legal thing, but in any way, like you can use that use that as a defense that oh well, this employee didn't use the policy, so too bad, and that that way the complaint can be defeated. And so we had like similar developments in the U in Canada in the 1980s. Of course, and human rights tribunals and labor arbitrators similarly recognized sexual harassment as a form of sexual discrimination. Uh, I don't, I think like it's not as extreme in the sense of oh, we have a policy, so your complaint is defeated um, level here, to my knowledge. But having policies definitely helps to show to a court or a labor arbitrator or whatever and just be like, hey, like, we care, look at this. And I, it's important to like look at the development of the workplace human rights stuff because it really sets a precedent or sets in motion what happens in universities as well. Um, because so in the 2010s, we saw almost all provinces, I want to say not all, but they all passed, a lot of them passed laws to make university, make it mandatory for them to have sexual violence policies. And I mean, honestly, when I was a student at that time, I, uh, that, that was, seemed so great to me too. And then I learned that actually universities went through this another wave of anti-harassment policy making in the 1990s. So at that time, it was focused on um, professor-student interactions and like sexual harassment specifically. Um, but th there are a lot of parallels between how these policies came about and th the structure of the policies essentially as well. And um, when in 1993, uh, the Supreme Court brought like students... Essentially, the Supreme Court of Canada decided that universities were under human rights purview with respect to students because they're providing a service to students, which is another story of like education being marketed as a service. Um, and so, yeah, so yeah, so that decision and like the uh, developments in workplaces really kind of made it so that these anti-harassment policies were written in universities. And then, and then we have, so to my understanding, like not a lot happens in respect to policymaking for a couple of decades until things start moving in the U.S. with Title IX, uh, the Obama administration, 
gets very response to a lot of student activism, but just uh, about campus sexual violence. And anyway, like there's a lot of movement in the US and it does have ripple effects in Canada as well. And and this is kind of when Tamsin and I, I think like the point where we started our political journey. So that's like, you know, I like remember these things, like the government reports, the academic writing, um, a lot of student activism and media coverage around uh, campus sexual violence. And yeah, I think it was like in 2017 that Ontario adopted uh, the law to require all universities to have sexual violence policies. I think that there's an idea that sexual violence is different than other forms of quote-unquote misconduct. Um, I I have thoughts on that. Essentially, um, I, I do think that it's different. I think that ha- that like difference is used to just be like, okay, here's its own quote unquote standalone policy and the problem is solved. Because so that's kind of like part of the law. So universities need to have quote unquote standalone policies, even though previously they had a code of student conduct, they had anti-harassment policies, they had like human rights policies. Now they needed their own sexual violence policies. But if you actually look at these policies, they're not really standalone at all in the sense that the UFP policy, for example, it relies almost entirely on the code of student conduct for anything substantive. That whole document is pretty much just, I forget what it calls. I don't think it says survivor. Honestly, I'm not too attached to that language, so <laughs> that's fine. I think it says complaint. I don't know. I don't, applicants. Anyway, but like it has, it says, oh, like responses need to be like trauma informed and um, the trauma, trauma is like very important to like address trauma and that we support you. Support is very important. But what is um, absent is like clear timelines about when we will respond to you when you have a complaint. What is absent is what factors they're going to consider in investigations. But, um, oh, oh, sorry, code of, so the UFP policy is reliant on the code of student conduct, but also even like documents that are outside of that type of policy so by that mean like occupational health and safety act of ontario like that it comes before the sexual violence policy the um, collective agreements so if um yes if you are um a grad student for example that you're a ta so you're covered by a ca you're also covered by the sexual violence policy because you're working so you're also covered by occupational health and safety act my god like that's like a nightmare it's like who what what like covers that like we don't know we actually still don't know um in in that area of the law like okay so like what is actually who who are you supposed to go to are you going to your union or you should probably uh or like but yeah yes you should are you going to like union like is like your student union student union no because they're mostly useless right now at least the one at usp um or my experience um are you going to the sexual violence office? So it's kind of like a mess um, in that regard. And I mean, I know Tanzan can also speak on this, but like, for example, I would just like give one example that like, so I talked about how HR obviously is part of management and the way that sexual violence offices are truly part of management. It really hit me when I uh, called the sexual violence office after my faculty told me to do that because apparently going through yes so faculties can have their own internal system as well so that's another layer so after I went through that thing they told me oh no you should go to the sexual violence office so I did um, they didn't pick up the phone for a while but <laughs> I got a hold of them and 
I so my complaint was against a professor, and I asked, would there be a hearing against a student and a professor as well? And they didn't know. But like, how do you not know that? And so they were supposed to get back to me, but then they got back to me a month later, saying that、uh, I can meet with you with my supervisor.、Um, and then I didn't meet with them at, at the end because I had filed a human rights complaint. But but by, by that point, but then I found out through freedom to information request later. That the sexual violence office actually knew about my complaint against the law faculty because the law faculty had been in touch with them、uh, like months ago, like two months ago, when I first brought it to the attention of the law faculty that why didn't you deal with my complaint? They like they were like, oh shit, let's reach out to the sexual violence office and see how to fit our behavior under the policy. So they knew about what everything that had happened. At, at, while at the same time, I'm being told to go to this office to, like, I suppose, make my complaint. But also, part of my complaint was how my faculty had responded to everything. But they were already giving advice to the law faculty, so that's just a huge conflict of interest. And it's not, and, and that's kind of what I was talking about when I said that、um, HR appears neutral if you don't know what <laughs> HR actually does, but campus sexual violence offices—they—they're just like seen as.、Um, Yeah, like the champion of survivors. You know, even if like you go on the website of the student unions, at honestly, like I I've looked them up. Like quite a few universities, the ones that I looked up, I haven't looked up all universities in the country, but they refer you to this office, and I think that's not appropriate. I don't think that you should be referring to students to that office without telling them what they can actually do for you. So I think what they can do for you is. So, if you need, for example,、um, to defer an exam, that's probably where you need to go because、um, that's kind of like an accommodation, so they can whatever deal with it, write a letter, whatever they need to do. But if you want to,、um, if you want some resolution of a complaint that you have against the professor, you can't go to that office because、um, other interests are determining what's going to happen.、Um, yeah. Sorry, I was just going to add on. I don't know if you wanted to go to another question, but just to add on a bit.、Um, first, just on like where do you go? I think、um, also when I was involved in organizing at U of T, we did like a poster campaign where we just got survivors and people who did experience sexual violence to send in their stories, and there were definitely several about、um, the unions that include U of T workers, and、um, in many cases, two members of. The union, like one, had assaulted the other, and problems with that and the processes for that. So I think, as much as like we want organized labor to be everything we want it to be,、um, unions can also be very patriarchal structures. And then I also just wanted to add on、um, just about you know kind of the options that are given to survivors. And I think and and like what Panise was saying about how how sexual violence is treated as sort of like. Very different from other types of harm and sort of like exceptional. I think this is a key difference from maybe other EDI projects, and also is a really important thing in structuring the responses to sexual violence. Namely, that a lot of these responses are through a very therapeutic lens that is individualizing, and it's all about the survivor. So you know, and I think that affects how the university addresses these things and like. Strategic ways and for strategic reasons, like if you're telling a survivor that mainly what they should be seeking is counseling, then that means you don't have to do anything. If say the person who assaulted them is 
like an important member of the university, it's much easier to give them five free appointments than, you know, to do anything that affects all of these other policies and structures. Um, but I also think this is kind of a, a broader cultural idea that affects the support that survivors receive and sort of means that like there's this emphasis on we believe you and this discourse of like whatever you want to do you can do it which is great but it also kind of means that all of the you know there's the idea that survivors have agency that I would say they probably don't and is sort of unrealistic especially to expect from someone who is undergoing intense trauma, but also means that all of that is placed upon the individual survivor. And it's sort of harder to form collectives around that. And I think even anti-violence organizing kind of comes up against this because, you know, I think there's kind of a resistance to saying like, this is what survivors need, or even to really articulating demands about the kinds of things that, you know, should happen to address sexual violence. Um, and I think makes it easier to talk about like consent training and education and these things that are sort of like universally appealing in a way, um, rather than like, you know, perpetrators should not be in classes with a survivor or, or things like that, that sort of are actually making stronger demands. And I'll just say one thing also on what Tamsin said about therapeutic um, interventions. So uh, I believe it's actually in the text of the law. So you, these policies need to um, enable students to make either, and either complaints or like informal complaints. Some like at U of T, that's called a disclosure. And my understanding, so in, in the 1990s policies that I mentioned, I believe, yeah, I'm pretty certain that they also were supposed to have like a similar two two tier complaint mechanism. And I. Yes, I find that it's something that looks good on the surface. So like you don't need to like make a formal complaint and it's like traumatizing and like whatever, which is like, yeah, it's true. But then at the same time, um, when you make disclosure an option, not that it shouldn't be, but like when you, I I find that it can be pushed on people um, so that you don't go through with the formal complaint. So when I was talking to the uh, sexual assault office, I, man, I thought I was making a complaint. I'm like on the phone with this person telling them like everything like that happened, how the faculty responded, whatever. And then at the end, I find out that apparently I like disclosed and I wasn't making a complaint. Like that, I was not informed of that. And like, I, this is not, this wasn't my first degree. You know, it was, it's not like I was like 18. It was also not my first complaint, unfortunately. But I was very frustrated because I'm like, no, I'm like a grown woman. I don't need to like disclose to whoever, like, you know, like, no, obviously like people like may need that and that's fine. I just find that like patronizing that that's just like the first thing. Like it's the assumption that, oh, I'm like this like delicate flower that needs to be told. Oh, I believe you. Blah, blah. I'm like, no, actually, can you stop telling me you believe me? Like, I want to just tell you what happened and you do something about it. Um, yeah. So I guess that's like the other side of these things that um, I, I find that they can also be like very patronizing. So, so what, what Tamsin talked about that. Um, so there's a lot of talk of, Oh, like you choose what happens next. Like survivors are in the driver's seat. Like you should do like whatever you want. And like a lot of times you, you can't because you're under like an enormous amount of stress. And a lot of times, with I found myself um, with the, the UFT complaint is that I actually could I was in a good place to be doing this but I just kept doors just kept being shut on me or I was just ha- 
I'm against my will going through this handholding process of like needing like the support that I like don't need like just yeah cut cut the meeting shorter like I don't yeah um both both are bad and sorry I know we've been going for a while this question I just want to respond back again um yeah because you're right I think there's kind of this like the, the flip side to that is if you are like an empowered person who does feel like they have agency and knows what they want, like it's also true that, and I, I think if anything, this was more my feeling when I went through this process where I was like, I don't want to see this person around campus. Like it's a very small college. I think it's reasonable that like we shouldn't be in the same residence and like you know, there are other sections of this poli-sci class, like surely he could be moved to, you know, not be in my vicinity. But I think there's a kind of like, again, very calculated redirection that also comes around like giving giving survivors information where, um, you know, at least in my experience, I was told several times about like the risk of like, I'm blanking on the word, not retribution, um, like where they were like- Retaliation? Were, retaliation, yeah. Around the risk of retaliation where, you know, I would be told like at every stage of the process, like, well, if he does anything, we can't really stop him. Um, And that's like, maybe true, but again, kind of how these processes and policies like limit the scope of what is considered possible. And I think that's my biggest problem with all of these like policy-based approaches, like we've been talking about that are so limiting because like, okay, well, what if you want to report sexual violence and like be safe to do so? Like who is ensuring that? And why is it if there's a sexual assault center, why is that not part of their job? But it just kind of isn't. Um, and so, yeah, all of these things, all of these things are very limiting. Um, I just also, sorry, Dave, I just to add another thing about the problem with the therapeutic approaches is that, and how that can be used against uh, survivors and complainants is that my faculty, one way that they justified their inaction was telling me that I had made a disclosure so they didn't even know that word before because they've never used that in any correspondence with me. They talked to the sexual assault office. I guess that's where they learned that this thing exists. And then they started retroactively labeling that as a disclosure. And it's weird because um, in, a in a paper written in like the 1990s about the, that first wave of um, uh, policymaking that I mentioned, it's this I forget the person the author's name but like he has warning that this is going to happen and it was kind of wild to just be like wow and it happened and it's probably still happening if I could I sorry so sorry I just had one other thought I wanted to get into this part um about like the exceptionalism around sexual violence which is just that I also think that has like an interesting effect on university reputation where I think there's an outside outsized influence of sexual assault cases in the news, which is sort of, I think we can see as like a mixed result. Like it, it means that universities in some ways like pay more attention to sexual violence, but it's also the understanding of sexual violence is through this frame of like, this is something very rare and usually this kind of stranger danger idea of sexual violence. And so like when parents hear these things, often the calls are for more surveillance and more carceral solutions that don't actually do anything about the actual sexual violence that is happening. Um, but just to say that universities, like when I've been in meetings and dealt with administrators, um, they definitely do see sexual violence as like a huge reputational risk. And so there's this very delicate 
balance of like trying to appease survivors through these processes that inherently um, don't prioritize them. And there's, um, I just remembered, but I can't find the exact numbers, but there was a, maybe I can send it to you and put it in the show notes if that's okay. There was um, a student newspaper at U of T found, they did a freedom of information um, request and they got interesting data about the outcomes of reported sexual assault cases in 2013, 2014. And it was like 150, I think, around cases reported. Some of those went to, at the time they had like mediation, um, informal resolution, which was very sketchy, but I won't get into that too much, but all of these kind of processes before an actual hearing, which a few cases did go towards, but in none of those cases were there a suspension or expulsion of a perpetrator compared to, I don't know the numbers, but how many expulsions and suspensions are there every year for plagiarism? Um, you know, and yet I think culturally we do have this understanding that sexual violence, like if it were in a criminal system, you could go to jail for decades, which is not to say that that's just, but just that administrators are really playing this fine line. Um, and all of these policies are kind of creating this vagueness so that in each case they can find the way of making sure that a survivor is like happy, but also discouraged enough that they won't speak out or go to the media or, you know, talk to other survivors or get involved in activism or anything like that. Um, and kind of balancing that. I think that you've done a a uh, great job of uh, of tearing through the the veil around this stuff, right? And really uh, showing how these are profoundly bureaucratic processes um, that allow the institutions to continue to function, right? In both cases, but maybe we can draw some of the threads together in terms of EDI and sexual violence programs, because I think you've already touched on some of these these connections that I think are really important. Um, as you know, these are bureaucratic responses by employers and other administrators to real problems, but the responses are these extraordinarily controlled and bureaucratic ones. But then they have this kind of broader influence, I think, in terms of how people actually think about how to fight oppression, uh, what oppression is and, and how to fight it. So, you know, is the solution to hire better HR staff who've been better educated about EDI and sexual violence? Do we need an EDI lead? Do we need another sexual violence officer? All this kind of thing. Um, and university employers have been really you know, leaders in adopting these kinds of, of measures. Uh, and universities themselves are places where I think new ways of administrating or ruling people are incubated, um, which can then be taken up and used beyond campuses. And now we have, you know, we're living in a, a moment in history where a very large percentage of young people are going through universities and colleges uh, because of labor market pressures and what people need in terms of credentials in the job market and so on. So more and more people are actually potentially influenced by these kinds of programs and the ways of thinking that they foster. Um, and then a lot of these people end up going on to be supervisors, managers, teachers, and so on, who can be influential in other ways. So I'd be interested in your thoughts about the kind of the big picture um, implications and the politics of, of these things. Um, the first thing that comes to my mind is kind of like what I also mentioned with respect to union substitution effect of EDI initiatives. Um, so I also think that campus sexual violence uh, initiatives on the university managed ones are a form of union substitution in the sense that I think it should be the job of student unions to ensure their like, constituents can um, attend class in peace or like just to to just even like come with them to meetings or just take on that role that we would normally attribute to a trade union, for example. Um, 
currently that like yeah as as I said like if you go on the website of like I don't know a lot of the student unions they are referring to the campus sexual violence office and is to me that's just like such an abdication of responsibility and also individualizing it to a very like it's like you come to your student union but now we're telling you as an individual to go to this office that they have I mean they were right like they were all like established like not that long ago not that like this um, framework of these offices this network of offices hasn't been around but yeah just sending people off to offices I think um, I think it is really individualizing harm and responses to that um, and yeah like um, and I think it also creates this uh, environment where I suppose like in, in trade unionism you would call that like business unionism so I mean <laughs> In my experience, most people that are like student union execs are like extremely like, um, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I went to law school too, but you know, they're all very like, that's kind of like business and law and like, they want those reference letters. Like I know, I know people who haven't um, rocked rock the boats as student execs because of those reference letters, even though it's literally their job. And um, oh my God, yeah, like at my own faculty, for example, if, if, if the if the dean of the faculty is giving you like an award um, for like your leadership and you're the student body president or you're the VP equity and the dean is giving you an award, that's like Doug Ford and uh, Jerry Diaz and like whatever, Smokey Thomas, like shaking hands. Like it's that bad. Like Doug Ford should not be giving a union, um, a union president, uh, you know, I mean, I don't think he gave an award, but like, he was like, oh yeah, it's like nice to work with them or something like that. So that that's, it, I think that's just like a sign that something is wrong. Um, and yeah, I, and I think you see it at like various levels of, um, I guess, of society, you know, you see it. Um, there's a quote by Sylvia Winter that Ronaldo Walcott used in our interview, um, or an, a, a paraphrased quote maybe, which is that all of the people who are making and populating the death-making machinery of society are also coming through the university. Um, and I mean, again, with these partnerships with private industry, like there are students who are going to these programs and um, they have varying opinions, but I think you know, even with like the mobilization of the alt-right, um, which has always been happening, um, but under that new name happened a lot when I was an undergrad um, with Jordan Peterson and like neo-Nazis were coming to campus to uh, protest trans students existing, uh, basically. Um, a lot of those students come through kind of the STEM programs and not to say that all students in um, kind of the harder sciences are, you know, um, bigoted, but they're also, <laughs> um, you know, students are being kind of trained to align with in a certain way with capital and um, a certain amount of them will. And, you know, I think also too, like with strikes um, at U of T, I know the, there was also one in my first year and a lot of students did not support the TAs who taught them every week and many of whom would explain in tutorial why they were going on strike. Um, and many students were vehemently against this. And I think, you know, administration uses that to um, reach like very unfair deals with the workers. 
I think there's there's a lot of factors that are preventing any kind of solidarity between students and academic workers. And I think that's the solidarity that we want to see. But then there's also like, I'm also thinking of Sarah Ahmed's piece against students where she talks about how a lot of these equity discourses are also being um, framed in terms of students being like fragile for wanting to talk about the inequalities that exist on campus. And so they're just sort of dismissed as students are being consumeristic. And so that's kind of the biggest framework in which we're actually talking about the, you know, the consumer business model of education is in this kind of dismissive way about students. And then students are also kind of being trained to exist in this framework. Yeah, it's so funny when they call us fragile and whatever for that because what I know about power in society like the kind of like a deep knowledge of like how it operates within institutions is how I learned uh, is what I learned through making complaints within these institutions it's very difficult to like keep pushing to have like a certain experience and and then just be like no that was not acceptable and then keep taking it like they keep shutting doors on you and you just keep saying no it's it's I'm always amazed like I feel like the business union types that we discussed I don't think they would survive going through a complaint process um at a university and another thing that I wanted to say um is that so yes EDI sexual violence on campus I think they also both demonstrate the bureaucratization of equality in a way if that makes sense and this is not like new but I guess um further entrenchment of that. Um, so Janet Haley, who is a controversial figure, um, so she calls this government governance feminism. And so about like what happens when feminism enters the halls of power and how, what initiatives it's used in to what ends. And so I think campus sexual violence, for example, is a good example of governance feminism. And it can also like refer to, for example, the criminalization of sex work or it, it's a lot of things. But yeah, so like with this specific example, um, something that she writes about that I like agree with is that for the Femocrats, so the feminist bureaucrats, uh, she writes about how Femocrats insist on the purity of their intentions, no matter, no matter the damages they occasion. Governance feminists should acknowledge the harms in collaboration, compromise, collusion, complicity and co-optation. And yeah, so it's not, it's not that all governance is bad. So it's not that you, I don't think either of us is saying that like we shouldn't work for the university. I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't in that specific capacity, but like that, I guess like the point is that responsible governance, responsible engagement in those positions requires adopting um, an ethics of responsibility in the sense that, so she writes, uh, Janet Haley writes, to look down and behold the blood on one's own hands. So maybe to just like acknowledge that you can also cause harm by being in these positions. And I I don't know why that's so controversial. Like if, I don't know, if like you are a lawyer, you are, you know, well, I'm not yet a lawyer. That's why I'm kind of like been vague. Like I'm an article student, so it's between law school and lawyer. But so if you're a lawyer and um, you are you're in courts, um, I can't think of a specific example about how lawyers can occasion harm. They can occasion a lot of harm, okay? Like, I don't even need an example. I think we all agree. Like, you can, like, accept that while having your job. Not that that, like, excuses the harms, but, like, I guess, like, um, 
you or you can like accept the limitations of, for example, working in a nonprofit or working even at like a legal aid clinic or like working um, as an academic, like a lot of things. But I feel like at least in my experiences, we're Tamsin and I have not been allowed to voice that, okay, maybe part of what you're doing is also part of the problem. And I mean, I am accepting that like I also like that you can uh, say the same thing about like my positions as well. Um, I just think that it's important to accept what limitations your work has in these positions. And um, also, yeah, I'm just be honest about that. Be honest about what you can actually provide to like survivors or like racialized workers or whatever and not just um yeah yeah just to quickly add on to that um I feel like we keep just adding on to each other but I think it's addressing different questions hopefully um yeah I think there's this idea that I've heard often from feminists but certainly more from like more bureaucratized people working in fancy positions and nonprofits and um, administration that like, you know, we need people working inside the system and outside the system, which I think is like a fundamental misunderstanding of capitalism and of like what the system is doing and, and also of what you can do within it. Like we've been talking about, like, yeah, like it's kind of framed as like, well, we need both, but that narrative leaves out that like, yeah, I mean the problems again with working within the system, but also like there's, now fewer people working outside the system with no resources and no support. And I think too, I've often heard it framed as like, it's easy to be angry, but it's hard to like, you know, be strategic and, um, (laughs) which is just blatantly, I mean, siding with the institution. Um, and this is where to to recognize that there's actually a contradiction at a certain point. Yeah, exactly. It's not somehow that these, these are just different ways of trying to make change. These are actually in many ways incompatible. And as socialists, we need to actually draw lines and say that yeah. it's, it's one thing you can accept, but it's maybe challenging and contradictory to work in a legal aid clinic. And there might be some things that people need to be aware about, but we draw a line at Crown Prosecutors, right? You know, you, and just, exactly. you could think about the same thing within the university institution, like, you know, a lower level position where you don't have a lot of managerial responsibility. You know, it might be contradictory, but you know, you don't take the position where you're running the unit because then you really are a part of the employer structure. You're not part of a union yourself anymore at that point and, and so on. Exactly. And that's where I think it's these kind of individual politics of like, I'm an intersectional feminist, but I work in this organization and I'm trying to change it from the inside is kind of just laundering the reputation of the organization. Um And I think especially the implications of this for, you know, for students coming into the world is that they see more of these people, um, especially with sexual violence, like what Paniz was alluding to of our experiences. I think we've often come up against, um, you know, people who are sort of dishonest about their investment in the organizations they work for. um, And and, and even will sort of position themselves as like open to critique. um, But don't want to hear from grassroots organizers who have no reason to be silent and who like want to talk about the work of the institution um, because it makes them look bad and it undermines what they're doing, quote unquote, from the inside. Um, so like if you're if you're a student and you're trying to do anti-sexual violence work, like some of these people that I can think of who are administrators or work in a more professionalized capacity in anti-violence in the anti-violence field, um, 
you know, like they'll, like they might invite students to do events with them and, and do all of these kind of mentorship activities. And then if you call out the institution, like you're definitely blocked off from those opportunities. And in a world where, as you said, like students are, are sort of desperate to get the, the networks and the opportunities that can lead them towards like a decent wage in the future. And where a lot of students are very, are very worried about that. Like, I think it often just doesn't feel worth it to speak out. And then also there is no capacity building on, um, you know, what would it take for you to be able to criticize that person? I mean, even for myself, like one of the biggest um, factors that I thought about when I was like, okay, should I file a human rights complaint against USP was if I want to do like grad school and go into academia, so does that mean I can never apply for any jobs at UFP law? And I mean, ultimately I thought, yeah, that might mean that. And like, I, you know, or maybe fine, who knows? But um, yeah, I think uh, that's real what you said, Tamsin. And another thing about um, working within and outside the institution, I think I'm also, obviously, so I, I agree with like the institutional critique that both uh, David and Tamsin, you both raised. And another thing that I wanted to say is like, I'm so skeptical of it because of personal experiences that I've had too. Like when, so I did women's studies and then like in uh, a lot of my courses, like I took a lot of courses, but like, but like the progressive professors in law school as well. So just, you know, I, I, I raised like my complaints both in undergrad and in law school with a lot of those professors and just like the quite senior tenured feminist professors and just the responses that I would get, like, you don't, it's kind of like hard to believe, like, why wouldn't like you are teaching us day after day about like feminist ethics and standpoint theory and like human rights law and whatever. And the excuses that they had for um, like not doing anything about it was kind of wild. So that's um, it's, yeah, I I feel like, so I, I I guess what I want to say is that like, it's one thing to like be aware of the criticism um, and agree with it. And then you're, you're hit in the face with people in the system that are supposed to be, there that are supposed to be helping you and they don't and it's like okay um maybe going back to the anti-black racism reports but so it's like well maybe um staffing isn't the solution then and maybe something else is needed well that's a good sorry (laughs) i may have been getting into it anyways but i was just gonna say i think that it dovetails along another kind of commonality of just like there are professors and I think many other professors but also students see like I know I've been lucky to have a couple women gender studies professors like I don't even know if I should name them because maybe that would you know have an impact on them who who are outspoken on behalf of students and um these issues within their universities and there are like very clear sanctions against them like one of these professors I was talking to and she was like I just accepted that they're not gonna they're not gonna promote me and it's worth it but you know that is a heavy cost to take on um and and so again with these this idea of like we need more black faculty that's that's great that really is great but then what happens when they're in these positions and what if they are trying to advocate for black students which I think is what we sort of assume will happen or want to happen by having more faculty members who represent the diversity of their communities. Um, you know, there's no 
there's no reason to think that they won't be punished by the people that we know exist within the universities, even just still thinking within this kind of individualistic lens, like we know there are racist people within the university and why would they not, um, you know, try to kind of punish um, anyone who tries to change what they see as the university. And I would just say that it just takes, <laughs> if there are professors listening to this, I'm sure there are a lot, like it, it honestly takes like that one pause to be um, good, which I was lucky to have one <laughs> in both schools. Um, it does make a lot of difference when you feel like there, when, when you feel like all doors are like shut on your face and then there's like that one person that is willing to um, be corresponding with more senior people or like just helping you make sense of that mess. It is makes a lot of difference. So just noting that as well. Maybe we could wrap up with uh, taking a very different tack. Um, and that is maybe on a, on a hopeful note to talk about the kind of feminism that you are hoping to promote through the Anti-Gobos Socialist Club, um, just to give listeners a, a sense uh, of the alternative vision that, uh, that you're committed to. <laughs> We're both sort of hesitating to answer, I think. Yeah, I hadn't prepared, so I'm trying to think. Yeah. I think just maybe off the top of my head to like get started. I mean, I think firstly, at least my sort of perspective on the podcast is that I'd be hesitant to say even that we're trying to advance a particular form of feminism, but more trying to understand and explore possibilities for what socialist feminism could be. And I think that's, you know, that's why we want to talk to different guests and talk about different topics because we're kind of coming into our own understanding of abolitionism, anti-imperialism, um, socialism in feminism and how all of these ideas interact. Um, and so like, that would be broadly the kind of feminism that I think we're trying to advance. But I also think we, we obviously see it as something that um, is not just up to us. Not that the question is assuming that we're like the ones deciding what the future will hold. Um, but a broader collective project that I think we're trying to just understand what that could look like. And also on, um, and something that I'm really hoping that we can do, uh, well, we've done to an extent and we're going, uh, going, uh, going forward, um, speaking with um, feminists and organizers from not just Canada, so just um, having an international perspective as well, because I think that's missing. And the, I'm not saying that like I, have that and nobody else um does like it's like something that i think think is missing i feel like i'm missing that and i feel that i'm missing that and it's hard to know how to um um like it's it's also like hard to, hard to know like where to look for um so yeah we're also like hoping to have guests from um other countries to speak to us about movements in theirs and how um our struggles are interrelated and just to add slightly onto that, I think also like not just from the English speaking world, although is our French good enough to do a French episode? I think Maybe. so. I think, I it, think, I think so. it actually is. Yeah. We just haven't branched out in yeah. that way. But yeah, I mean, I guess I think part of the broader project of the podcast is more about understanding how possibilities have been foreclosed for what feminism could be and then trying to understand what work is already being done to broaden the horizons in some form.
that's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word-of-mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com.